Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am now joined by one of my friends to talk about his. Dallas Cowboys. We're doing some stuff this fall with the NFL season and college football season, kicking off some rapid reactions, some some stuff that happened. So you're going to be hearing this early on a Friday on your commute last night, but it happened tonight. The Dallas Cowboys go down in uh, heart wrenching fashion. The Dan Quinn special against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady, of course, orchestrating a last minute drive to to give Ryan Suckup the opportunity to put the nail in the coffin for the Dallas Cowboys to start 0-1 this season. Bogle, your your first reaction to the Dallas Cowboys going down here? Um, I, I think they played a really good game. I definitely think that coming off the you know two surgeries this past offseason, um, not really having a training camp because of shoulder injury, Stuff like that. I mean, I, I, I think that he was phenomenal and he showed that he's back 100%. And Amari Cooper, too, who's coming off a – there were several players actually coming off um, surgeries from the offseason. But Amari Cooper looked great. Um, he led the team in receptions, yards, stuff like that. Um, Greg Zerline definitely um, struggled in the beginning, uh, missing two or three kicks. But, I mean – he kind of came in whenever it counted and hit that last kick at the end. Um, I think they just gave Tom Brady a little bit. Um, he, they gave him a little bit too much time because um, I mean he's you know pretty well known for being able to for game winning drives. <laughs> but overall, I think they played well. I'm excited for the season um, and, and I'm excited for what's to come. It's also good that you didn't hear Connor McGovern's name called a whole lot in this game, right? Like, the fact that he wasn't really... Like, not having Zach Martin was a problem, but that's not where Vita Vea was lining up all night. That was, I believe, Sue was lining up on that side. Vita Vea is going to give Dak nightmares for weeks to come. Like, what he was doing in this (laughs) game was illegal in seven states. But there's nothing really you can do. Not a lot of linemen can, can match up with Vita Vea right now. But what's interesting with this group um, and something I had jotted down in this game was the Cowboys with a healthy Dak. It, it is a top five NFL offense. Like this group with a healthy offensive line, even without Zach Martin, um, this offensive unit's top five. Like they're going to finish in the top five in offensive DBOA. The defense still, still a lot of question marks, that kind of thing. But um, I don't know. I think there is a lot to like and people just like discount Dak way, way, way too much because Dak and Dallas um, average a league high 6.4 yards per play in 2019. They were on their way in 2020 before he got injured, um, averaging 6.5 yards per play per PFF. And then it fell to 4.7 after he got hurt last year. And obviously the season unloaded. I think what we're on pace for is another 6.5 yards per play. Like the yak machine, CD lamb, you had Amari Cooper targeting, um, targeting this Tampa Bay secondary early and often you had Michael Gallup doing a bunch of stuff underneath, doing a bunch of screens, doing a bunch of pick plays, like all that kind of stuff until he went out. But like, I really like what Dallas is doing. Their offense makes sense. Kellen Moore, I thought, called an elite game. Dak had some floaters in the first quarter, but I think he got more comfortable as the game went on. And he did everything possible to give this team a, a chance to win. And that Zerline missed field goal, that missed extra point, and... I, I, there was there were some bad moments, but also like you know, Tampa Bay had back to back series where like Godwin missed a potential touchdown drive where he over the shoulder on third down, and then obviously fumbling into the end zone that Jordan Lewis returned. Um, what happens if Jordan Lewis returns that field goal at the end of the the first half? Um, or that, if Greg if Greg Zerline makes both of those kicks. I yeah, can, it's a lot of what is. It is, and I and I honestly think that the biggest the biggest thing to take away from this game is how much Dallas's offense has, or uh, how much their defense has improved this offseason. Um, whether just the adding Parsons or the unpopular opinion, if you know throwing Dan Quinn in the mix and bringing a 
um, you know, fresh set of eyes to this defense could be the turning point of it because, you know, we Dallas, I feel like for a long time has had, you know, they, they have a star studded Jerry Jones wants to pack the offense with, you know, the, the, the most stars that he can, um, and defense has kind of lacked in that department. So I think that if Dallas can keep up with, you know, what the defenses showed tonight, um, you know, they, they really can make it run at it this year because I think Tampa Bay is definitely in the team to beat. Um, you know, they brought back all of their return, all the players from last year. And I mean, Tom Brady definitely showed tonight that he's, you know, better than ever. So I think they're the team to beat and for Dallas to pull, you know, it, to, for Dallas to almost beat them shows, shows a lot. And for their defense to be able to shut that down, for the moment, well, not so much shut it down, but I mean, to be able to keep the game close um, showed a lot as well. It's a great schedule, too. Like, I think you got to be feeling good. We actually play all again in Dallas in uh, November, so I'm looking forward to the Dan Quinn Turkey Bowl um, on the 14th. But no, you, so you go to LA after this next week, then you got, and it's a 10 day layoff, which is going to be nice after this kind of brutal game. Then you get the Eagles at home, the Panthers at home, the Giants at home, at Pats, at Vikings, Denver at home, Atlanta at home, Vegas at home, at Kansas City. But like, there's a real easy path to seeing when I look at this schedule. I'm like, the Dallas is, they're going to be fine. Like, this game was the, like, this was a, one of those games where it doesn't necessarily matter that you didn't come out with a victory because of what you did, what you showed toe-to-toe. This is a playoff game. It could have gone either way. Like, Dallas showed that they belong in that top echelon group if they're healthy. Like, everything comes down to health in this league, and the Cowboys clearly have the offensive pieces. And like you said, they added some defensive guys like Micah Parsons is going to be a good player. Jordan Lewis looks better. Um, a lot of ex-Falcons in this game. Keanu Neal, um, it, it's it's wild to see that many dudes out there. And I think uh, it was a DeMonte Casey who was out there. But um, I don't know. I think it's interesting that Jalen Smith's not a not a thing anymore. And Leighton Vander Esch are just gone from this Dallas defense. And Sean Lee. And it's just new faces. Um, Randy Gregory had a big fumble recovery. Was there was there a standout for you defensively? Like, was there one guy you were like, wow, that was a lot better? Is it Diggs and that crazy almost pick that he had? He's saving the Mike Evans big play and that two-minute drill from Tampa? Like, what? who stood out to you most in the defense? Um, I, I, you know, I definitely think Diggs stood out. I, I also think that um, Demarcus Lawrence kind of had a mm. little bit of a slump last year, um, and I, I really think that he showed up this game. And, you know, I hope that is um, going to be a constant and not kind of, you know, an every now and again kind of thing. Um, and, and I really think Parsons, you know, is going to be um, something special. I think that he definitely has the potential to be, you know, the defensive rookie of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. It is, and it's definitely possible. Um, can you double check with me? Did, did Ezekiel Elliott play in this game? Uh, he did for a. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he did. But I mean, he, he was in there. You no, know, Tampa. Uh. Tampa Bay also has a phenomenal run defense, mm-hmm. um, and I think that showed a lot of um, Kellen Moore's kind of wit not to try and just because you know a lot of the talk this offseason has been, oh, Zeke has lost all his weight. He looks blah blah blah. He looks great. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And I mean, instead of you know, just coming out trying to prove that. They kind of use them whenever they needed him, realized that, hey, we're not going to be able to run the ball a lot this game, and, you know, went to the air um, and showed off the, you know, elite receiving core that Dallas has. Well, speaking of the elite receiving core, who impressed you the most of the big three? Was it Gallup early on? before he left the game do the ankle stuff was it amari cooper who also got her in a touchdown catch that man you just have to hold your breath for all the time um and then cd lamb who just missed your yak machine and was doing all kinds of stuff in this game but the drops still a thing and it looks like it's going to continue to be a thing for a while but uh what, what do you make of the big three and who impressed you the most um i honestly think amari cooper impressed me the most um, in this game just because 
I feel like in you know, especially last year, he's kind of he's either you know kind of iffy or he was just kind of cold. I don't think that he was really standout. Um, but I think he came out this game. He made a lot of you know big plays, and he uh, he really showed himself. But I you know I also think that CD Lamb is gonna something something special is gonna come of him. Um, as long as you know, we can keep the offense healthy and stuff like that. I think that he's developing. I think if we can get drops under control, you know, he could be the top receiver on the team. Would you feel any differently about the Cowboys right now if they had won this game? I mean, not no on a realistic level. No, I mean, would I be a little bit more hyped up? You know, of course, but I think that just what they showed by, um, you know, hanging in this game until the very last second um, showed me, gave me all the confidence that the win would have given me. You know, if if they would have gone out there and got blown out, um, then, you know, it might be a little bit different tune. But, I, you know, I feel like with the margin that they lost by how well they played, um, the numbers they put up, you know, win or lose, the same um, kind of confidence and reassurance going into the season is there. Yeah. All right. Well, Bogle, um, any final final words on the Dallas Cowboys falling to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers tonight? I don't know about falling, but, it, you know, that confidence is there, man, and I'm excited for the season. And, and you know, I, I really hope that, uh, you know, Maybe in the NFC Championship game, we get a rematch tonight. I mean, I it, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, it's the Cowboys, and the the best thing about what you're you're looking at is just how weak that division is. Um, we're gonna get the Eagles on Sunday, so I'm excited to see what Jalen and that group looks like against this Falcons group. And then you have Washington with Fitzpatrick. Like, is he really gonna play 17 games? The defensive the, the defensive front is there, and also like Daniel Jones in year three, unless you're betting on a Josh Allen type jump which I am not, I would say that the it's it's a really easy path to the Cowboys hosting a playoff game and being right there several months from now. They stay healthy. It's just keeping Dak healthy because he got hit a lot in this game. He That is something he I did, would... And, it's, and he passed a lot, over 50 passes. Well, he does, but it also, you know, I was um, mortified whenever he would you know I didn't think that he would run an option or anything this game and just kind of try and play it safe but I think that he you know wanted to show that he's 100% and ran a couple option plays but I I don't know I'm still not 100% confident in him running up and down the field so if we can keep him in the pocket like he did tonight I think we'll be alright alright there you go Mr. Bogle, thank you for making the time. I appreciate it. Uh, I will talk to you soon, yes, buddy. Yes, sir. Anytime. All righty. All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Chase Jones Podcast as we roll along this latest episode where I am now joined by Perry Goldstein, a co-worker at Pack-A-Day, a very good Green Bay Packers podcast that you should go subscribe to if you have not already because the NFL season kicks off this weekend, the Packers being one of the highlights of this weekend. And we're basically on the same team, Perry, because I would like, as an Atlanta Falcons fan, um, an ATLian to, uh, for, for the Packers to knock off the Saints in week one. That would be a delight. Perry, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm happy to be here. And yes, I too would like the Packers to knock off the Saints on Sunday. <laughs> it would be great. Um, well, let's talk about this game because it got moved. It was going to be in New Orleans originally. Um, it's really unfortunate and just horrible as to why this game did move and thoughts prayers continue to be with the, the good folks down there in New Orleans in the area. Um, but this game has been moved and it got moved by all accounts because the saints did their homework and were like, well, he, he doesn't fare well in, uh, in Florida around this time. So, and that person being Aaron Rodgers, what do you make of the saints pushing this game to Jacksonville, um, from the get go? I think it's kind of funny. The research that they did looking at, uh, I heard they looked at flight 
prices mm. uh, to see like if Packers fans would travel well. Packers fans always travel well, so nice try. Um, <laughs> I think that regardless, there were very few places that were going to be worse to play as an away team than the Superdome, right? The Superdome's really loud. Saints fans are really involved in the game. It's a really tough place to play. So between, I think, like Arrowhead and probably Seattle, those are like the three, one of the three like hardest places for the Packers to play in history. So anywhere besides those three, I'm kind of happy with the move. I definitely feel for the Saints like losing a home game that, that's tough. Um, that home field advantage for them is very real, but I don't mind that the Packers are playing in Jacksonville. Okay. Are, are Packers fans nervous? Is that just you? Does the Packer Day podcast share this sentiment? Where, where are the heads at going into this game? I don't think anybody's really that nervous about where they play. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has played everywhere at this point. He has experience at every single field. So um, I think I think we're feeling okay. Are you like this is a such an interesting situation for Packers fans I imagine like are you are you mentally prepared to just like go into this year knowing that this is by all accounts by just uh, all objective measures that this is this is it for Aaron Rodgers in a Green Bay uniform are you are you preparing are you changing how you're viewing this season how does this being it for Rodgers and Devontae Adams too by all accounts as well um are, are you ready for that? Is that going to be in the back of your mind every week? How does that work for you? Yeah, I think that there was a level of denial last season amongst fans, like not really understanding where Rodgers stood with the organization. And then you kind of got hit, I would should, actually should say punched in the face by everything that happened this offseason to the point where I think a lot of fans were kind of on the side of expecting that he wasn't even to come back for the 2021 season. So now that he is, there's definitely a sentiment of, okay, this is the last dance. This is our last year with Aaron Rodgers, who, you know, he got drafted to the league when I was nine. So I, my, pretty much my entire life of being a fan of my team has been Aaron Rodgers. And that's kind of a hard transition to kind of you know, get mentally prepared to shift out of. So I'm glad we kind of have this final season to enjoy him. I'm certainly going to kind of bask in it and and not let any moment, um, take any moment for granted. You know, one of the best to ever do it for my team. That's just something you don't get every day. Um, so yeah, I think that there's um, kind of an understanding that the chances of him coming back in 2022 are really, really slim. Now, I don't know if everyone has the same thoughts about that, about Devontae. I think there's hmm. still a really, really strong hope that Devontae re-signs. Um, from what I've heard, everyone inside the building wants him to re-sign. Like, there's not really a sense um, that they want to let Devontae walk, right? But um, there's certainly, like, a denial factor there, but not so much with Rodgers. My dog is also very much pro Devante <laughs> re-signing in uh, in uh, Green Bay. I have no idea. She never barks. This, I'm guessing the mailman's here. So there you go. This is this is the fun part of having a home studio. So I apologize for that. Yeah, it just seems like I don't know. They're tagging together, and it. Well, I guess we'll learn how much Devante values Aaron Rodgers' perspective, right? Like if he's he's out, then. Um, is that is it's already just the organization's priority pretty peeved about everything that's gone on here but like if if Aaron also talks Devante out of resigning and they don't even join up together because like by all accounts you have the option in Vegas to rejoin his college team at Fresno with their car um, but yeah it should it should be interesting to see how that all unfolds but one of the cool things is as sports fans is we can compartmentalize all of this and push it to the side and like just forget like i am compartmentalizing that julio jones is not on my team anymore and that is very sad but guess what i have kyle pitts in my life now and i'm very excited to experience that and i'm just gonna shield it i'm gonna forget that the falcons do not have the pass rush to really compete for a super bowl this year no i'm i'm, I'm going in blind zero and zero eagles at home it's great i'm, I'm excited um the secondary that is the lasting uh, memory i think a lot of nfl ha- fans have of green bay with poor king in that game against tampa bay but 
when you look at what Jameis and this New Orleans Saints team is bringing, Marquez Callaway, no Michael Thomas in this game, Alvin Kamara as a wideout option. Um, how do you how do you like the secondary matchup against the Saints, and do you think the secondary will be improved this season with uh, with a new DC? Yeah. Um, so you ask me a great question. That is my favorite position group uh, to study. I love the DBs. Um, I am really, really excited about this secondary. I also, I think, look, Joe Barry is by all accounts like the offseason signing for the Packers. They did a kind of run it back. They didn't sign any big free agents. Their big free agent was Joe Barry. And really the goal is can Joe Barry do what Mike Pettin couldn't, which is put together all these incredible pieces that we have because I feel like there's so much talent on this team and they just couldn't quite put it all together and wrap it up into this nice neat little bow so I really want to see if Joe Barry can do that I think another piece of this right is actually the the defensive back coach um, Jerry Gray was promoted to being the passing game defensive passing game coordinator so he actually has a lot more say now across uh, the defense alongside Joe Barry and that I think is going to also be really key because he was really integral in the development of Jair Alexander last year. I think by all accounts, Packers fans have a lot of faith in that this is going to be kind of the pro first Pro Bowl year for Darnell Savage, safety out of Maryland. Um, and he really showed, I think, in the last you know half of last season that he can be that guy. I think Adrian Amos is one of the most underrated safeties in the league as well. So that tandem, I think, is going to wreak havoc. Um, from the perspective of the Saints game this week, I'm not – look, Michael Thomas isn't out there. The rest of the Saints, you know, pass catchers are kind of a question mark. So I don't think the secondary necessarily has a big task ahead of them. Who you're game planning for, right, is Alvin Kamara, who can, you know, catch passes out of the backfield. He can do pretty much everything. He can be that one-man show. Um, I think it's actually going to be more about the secondary making sure that they take him down – when he gets to that second level, because you know that Alvin Kamara is going to be able to do that. He can turn a what's supposed to be a five-yard slant into a 40-yard gain very, very quickly. So can the secondary tackle, which from my watch, me watching has been kind of a problem in the past years for the Packers secondary. So from the Jameis, you know, Jameis's arm, yes, it's big. He's also, you know, prone to making mistakes as well. I think if the Packers pass rush can get to him and kind of rattle the pocket, you know, they can maybe come come up with a turnover or two. And obviously the turnover turnover battle is going to be big. So um, I'm not super worried about their, their pass catchers. Really, it's just Alvin Kamara. Interesting. Yeah, and also we should mention Trey Consmith, who I think is really good and should be good for them. And Chris Hogan, who just made the team. He, he bounced back and forth between uh, <laughs> uh, Premier League lacrosse and uh, back to the NFL. So maybe he's uh, somebody to watch in this game as well. Um Something else that I think is interesting about this Packers team and people might not know going in is that um, no Bakhtiari. Like, the left tackle is out. Mm -hmm. It's going to be Jenkins, right, starting at the left tackle spot? Yep. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Multiple rookies starting on this offensive line, it looks like. A college free agent at the left guard spot. Like, I am very concerned about the offensive line, at least early on in Green Bay. Are you just as concerned, especially with a very good New Orleans Saints front seven? Yeah, yeah, that that's going to be a big one, I think, because they've got both, you know, Cam Jordan and Marcus Davenport mm-hmm. are going to be coming off edge. I have so much confidence in Elton Jenkins moving to left tackle. Okay. I think it's more about the domino effect of that move for the next six weeks. That's the biggest question mark. Because Elton Jenkins, I mean, I think this is going to be the year where the league kind of realizes, like, this guy's a stud. Eventually, he's going to have to choose one position to really become elite at. But he has played all five positions at some point since entering the league, which is just insane. Um, so I'm not super worried about Rodgers' blind side. I'm really more like, okay, so there's two rookies starting side by side in the interior. And that's going to be big, obviously, for protecting Rodgers, but also huge in the run game. Um, and getting that run game going is going to be really important in this game. So I, it, you know, bright lights, first game, you're protecting Aaron Rodgers. I just hope the moment isn't too big for them. I do trust the Packers coaching staff in that they're going to put out the best five that they can 
Um, and I know that Rodgers has spent a lot of time with rookie center Josh Myers this training camp, you know, developing that relationship that you need to have with your center, coaching him up, all those things. He's actually, fun in fact, the largest center Rodgers has ever played with. He's huh. like six five six six he's like humongous um which is kind of funny luckily rogers is a tall guy so you can see over him but yeah no i mean i'm i'm certainly concerned i think from an outside looking in if i was you know judging this from another team i'd be like whoa that's a lot of change there but mm-hmm. like i said i, I kind of trust the coaching staff and and the o-line coach adam stanovich to pre- prep these guys for this game okay um how does the distribution work in the backfield? Um, this is not even just from a fantasy perspective. It's AJ Dillon, obviously big, big pick last year. You still got Aaron Jones in the fold. You got a lot of dudes in, in the yeah. backfield, a lot of mouths to feed. How do you think the, the carry distribution works in week one? Yeah, I think that it's going to be, you know, Matt LaFleur has really, really, been very vocal about how important a running back rotation is for him Mm. and for this offense. And I don't know if they, I think that this sharing of carries between Jones and Dylan is going to be really important for just like keeping both of their legs fresh and ready to go. Um, Aaron Jones is, you know, one of the best backs in the league. Obviously he resigned to come back, but he definitely has like some injury history that you want to protect. And he's so dynamic when he's on the field and he really changes the game. So I'm looking at like a 60, 65, Aaron Jones, sort of 40, 35, AJ Dillon. I expected, but then again, I kind of go back and I think I expected AJ Dillon to be a little bit more involved last season and he wasn't, but he's presumably going to take all of Jamal Williams snaps and more. So that's kind of the breakdown I'm looking at. I think sneaky to watch, maybe not week one, but kind of later in the season is Kylan Hill. Um, The Packers just drafted him this year in the seventh round. I do not understand how he fell to the seventh round, um, but he is the most complete rookie running back I've ever seen. Just from a pass pro perspective, from the way that he runs, from pass catching, like I think he's actually going to get involved a little bit more than you would expect. So for now, I think it's going to be a fairly even split, maybe a little bit heavier on Aaron Jones, but later in the season, definitely watch out for Kylan Hill. I'm glad you mentioned Kylan Hill because I watched a lot of him at Mississippi State. Uh, being here in SEC country, that's like one where I just I circled. I was like, I tell him some words. I I would I would go with Kylan Hill in later rounds of the fantasy fantasy drafts. I that dude could do it all. He's a workhorse and was a star on a bad Mississippi State team um, at the end of the Joe Moorhead era and kind of got lost in the shuffle with a new staff and that didn't really work out with him and Leach and it was just not a not a good fit. So he just fell off the radar. I think that's really just why he fell in the draft is like he had a really rough last year and a half, but he also did some really awesome stuff getting the flag changed. In Mississippi so yeah. Kylan Hill is just a good dude and um, I'm rooting for him he's someone who's really easy to root for um, so when you look at what Jameis is bringing to the table this week when you look at what this offense should look like what is your biggest biggest concern for Jameis Winston not Taysom Hill being under center and also not Drew Brees because this matchup in 2020 was a high-flying high-scoring affair do you think? Do you expect a similar result? Do you think this is going to be a high-scoring back-and-forth game? Do you think Jameis will show more than what Drew was able to do last year? What What do you make of it? Yeah, week one is always super finicky, right? Like I feel like everyone's still kind of shaking the rust off, and you never really know what can happen in a week one matchup. I'm not sure I'm expecting, you know, the 37 to 30 that we saw last season. I definitely think that both of these offenses are going to score points. I just think Jameis at this, at the point in Drew Brees' career that he was last season, like could not be more opposite. You know, like Drew Brees was really like paper cutting you down the field. He could not sling it anymore. Um, Whereas Jameis, like that big deep ball is a threat from him. And if you give him a clean pocket, he can get it done. And that's been the Achilles heel of the Packers secondary just like we saw in the NFC Championship game, right, is giving up that big play. So as long as I think that they can keep that in check, this will be a close game. But Jameis can really, really beat you with his arm. His athletic ability is obviously why he was drafted, you know, first overall. So um, I think also Sneaky is 
uh, Sean Payton, right? That hmm. he is a really creative, I think he was, like I said, left with Drew Brees, who was kind of at the end of his career, was maybe a little bit stifled in what he could do with Drew Brees' arm. Now he has um, a Jameis Winston with that ability. Like, what's Sean Payton going to pull out of the bag? And also, is he going to end up using Taysom Hill in some capacity? Because I think he just likes teasing the Packers and see what I got from you and what I've used. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, last thing, and we'll wrap up here. So, what do you? What do? You, what is your expect expectation for for Sunday? How do you ultimately see it going? Um, who would you play, if fantasy folks? Who would you? Who would you bet on having the biggest day? And uh, what do you? What do you make of this season for the Packers? How does it go? At least early on. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have to pick my team to win mm. this one, but I think it's gonna be closer than I think most fans would want it to be. Like, I can definitely see this being a one-score game, whether that's touchdown or like a late field goal situation. Um, I do not count the Saints out. Like I said, I do not ca- count Sean Payton out. Um, fantasy, I would watch for MVS, um, Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I think the Saints have Marshawn Lattimore and then a really big question mark at CB2. So I think you're going to have to account for Devontae Adams and then that leaves guys like Marquez Valdez-Scantling open, um, who is, if you look at PFF and the stats, one of the best deep threats in the league. I know people question his hands, but he looked really, really good in camp. So Um, I think that's kind of a sleeper maybe for this game, but always the usuals, Devontae, Aaron Jones, um, you know, big Robert Tunyon at at tight end, who I think is going to have another big year. So, um, but I, I, I'll go MVS for my sleeper fantasy. I like it. Um, No Tanyan mentioned, which still just blows my mind that this dude was like going like number three among tight ends in my league this week and just seeing how much of a, big hot commodity he is is that weird like did you expect this from tanyan like why why is he suddenly just such a critical part of this green bay machine there's a couple of things with tanyan i think he's his relationship with rogers is really tight um which is a really important aspect of the i've heard uh, shout out to jake kumra yeah right yeah um, he's got really sticky hands. He catches everything. I was at camp for a week, and so I was at a couple of practices, and I do not think I watched him drop a single ball. Um, so I think that it's just, right, He he's a sneaky workhorse. I've heard, like, his work ethic, and he's there late. He studies the playbook. He's in there. So Rogers really likes the guy, and so he gives him those targets. I also think that Jace Sternberger has disappointed in a lot of ways in being that kind of move pass-catching tight end, and Tunyon's taken over that role from him, and there's not really anyone else to fill it, so he's the go-to guy. There you go. There you go. What can we check out from you ahead of this weekend's big matchup against the Saints? Sure. So uh, this morning, uh, the Pax Which She Said podcast, which is my personal podcast, mm-hmm. um, came out with an episode. That's our Saints preview. Um, we're also actually going to have a live show on Tuesday to recap the game, so you can check that out. I'll be recording with Andy Herman and the Packaday podcast this week, so that'll come out on Monday. Um, and yeah, just uh, check out Packaday and Pax Which She Said. There you go. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for making the time today. This was a lot of fun. Um, we'll have to check back, in, check back in again soon. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks for having me on. All right. Hello and welcome back to the Friday edition of the Chase and podcast where I am now joined by someone who covers the Cleveland Indians for Bally Sports. It's Al Pulaski. Al, good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good, Chase. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Um, what has happened covering the Cleveland Indians this year? How would you how would you summarize this season for 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 the tribe? Well, it's been an, an interesting one because uh, you know, when the season started, there were a lot of question marks. Um Pitching was something that was considered to be the backbone of the club, and it was uh, to start the year. The starting pitching was very strong. Shane Bieber in the first month and a half, couple of months, had a good, strong case for uh, defending his Cy Young Award. Then he went on the injured list. Uh, Zach Plesak went on the injured list, and then Aaron Savali went on the injured list. So then the Indians' depth was tested 
Uh, relief pitch-wise, up until August, the bullpen have been very good, very consistent. Um, there's still a couple of guys that are doing fantastic, but you've also got some other issues that happen there, such as Nick Sandlin getting hurt. and He was having a, a very good rookie campaign. Uh, James Karinchak, who was outstanding in the first half, basically had an all-star type first half, has struggled in the second, so he's been sent down. So that's put the bullpen in a bit of a flux. Uh, but again, we've seen some good young arms come up and and, and take the spots. Uh, Hitting-wise, it's been very inconsistent outside of Jose Ramirez and Fran Reyes for the most part. And they've been up and down a little bit too, but a lot less. They've been their typical uh, offensive production-type players where Jose Ramirez is hitting like an all-star and an MVP candidate. And uh, Fran Reyes, when he gets on one of his, his homer streaks, he is difficult to pitch to. Um, so that's kind of been the story of the season. Um, you know, guys getting hurt, but some younger guys coming up, taking their place, and for the most part, doing pretty well. The fact this team has been around 500 all season and dealing with the injuries and dealing with some of the youth where guys still, you know, have not reached their peak or come anywhere close to it as players has been impressive. Um, the big positive for the Indians are a couple of the younger guys, Tristan McKenzie and Cal Quantrill in particular, who had to step in for Bieber and Savali and Plesak, and then to a lesser degree, Eli Morgan. Uh, he, too, has done a nice job. But Quantrill and McKenzie especially, they have pitched in the second half like front-of-the-rotation starters. Um, they've really taken steps forward. Eli Morgan has done a nice job. He's improved, too. So when you take a look now at the starting pitching staff, you might have your depth chart for next year out to the first ten. Uh, all aligned, which is pretty impressive. And, and when you look at what potentially could be the starting five next year, assuming everybody's healthy, with Bieber, Savali, Plesak, Quantrill, and McKenzie, you know, out of that starting rotation, most of those guys would be ones, twos, or at worst threes in just about everybody else's rotation. And they're all pretty young, and they're all continuing to grow and develop as well. So they're already good, solid pitchers, and they're getting better. So that's been the big positive to come out of this season and of course the development of Emmanuel Classe too as a closer he's now one of the top closers in the game and he's got just some wicked stuff so uh, pitching development has been a very big positive for the Indians this year uh, one of the things the Indians will need to do in the offseason is just solidify that lineup can they can they find some guys to fill out the bottom half because that's the area where they need the most improvement who's responsible for getting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to McKenzie <laughs> Uh, good question. Uh, I don't know, but I'll tell you, I would love to have that problem to where, uh, and I, mm. I had it too when I was young. I was really thin, and I just—he's exceptionally thin, though. Out that man is what <laughs> six five, like what he's. So I am, I'm right there with him. I'm tall and lanky. Like I have always been that. Like I, I empathize with him. I know, I know what it's like. However, right. he is a he. He makes Chris Sale, Chris Sale look look a little bit more. Uh, look well-rounded. I guess I'll say. Like the Tristan McKenzie is right. is six five. What is he? One seventy? One fifty? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. I think he's about one seventy five. One seventy five. Okay. You know what? It, it's a good problem to have. I mean, yeah. it, for you, for him, and for me, because now as we're older, now it's not quite as easy mm. to keep the weight off as you get older. However, it's good to kind of start from from that position because then when you get older, it's it's not as much of a challenge, I guess, <laughs> as some others. So, yeah, you'd like to see him fill out the frame a little bit more because it probably will help him in the long run with his endurance, mm. and, you know, going through a full season and maybe even getting a little more power behind the pitches. But, um, yeah, as he gets older, um, he'll be happy to be more on the thin side when he was young. Absolutely. Um, you talked about the injuries. If, let's just say, in a perfect world, nine out of the ten guys you mentioned – remain healthy for the majority of the season. Do you think they're on par with the White Sox and could have given the White Sox more of a more of a challenge at the top of the AL Central? I, I think they definitely would have given them more of a challenge. You know, that being said, the White Sox have had a very good year. They have a very good lineup, um, one of the, the, the strongest in all of baseball. Uh, and the White Sox had to deal with injuries too. Next year, though, when you take a look at this staff, um, you know, the White Sox are dealing with their own injuries right now. And, you know, they unfortunately for them it's happening at the wrong time because you're you're getting toward the end of the season here and you've got the playoffs coming up and clearly the White Sox are going to win the Central Division and be in the postseason but when you look at it next year um, 
I'm looking at the starting five the Indians are going to put out there and then the depth they're going to have behind that at AAA, which they're going to probably have five guys in the starting rotation at AAA that any of those five could be on a major league roster and be starting for a major league team. So that tells you how deep this, this team is going to be with starting pitching. And I don't know if the White Sox are going to be in the same spot because of the guys they have that you know do have injury histories that have gotten hurt again this year, that are getting older. That's what could be a problem for the White Sox next year. But this year, yeah, it's an interesting question. Could, could they have given them a little bit more of a challenge? I, I definitely think so. But in the end of the day, with the White Sox have come out on top, uh, with the lineup they have and with the pitching they've gotten, I would say they probably still would have. Interesting. Um, do you think Terry Francona is still coaching or still managing this club a year from now, two years from now? I think so. Yeah, okay. I know he really wants to. You know, that's he's a he's a baseball lifer, and uh, he loves the sport. He loves being a part of it. Um, I honestly think being a manager is is good for him and, and good for his health. He's he loves it that much, and uh, he cares about it that much. Now, all that being said. You know, we don't know for sure. You know, we hope he can he can get his health to a situation where he can manage uh, for a full season for the Indians. But that's that's the plan. That's what he wants to do. I think it will happen. But as with anything in life, there's no guarantees. Miles Straw is maybe the most fascinating player. Like Shane Bieber is expected to just be like we just said. Uh, like it's just part of our part of our baseball watching experience is that we just know that Shane Bieber is an elite starting pitcher. What is yeah. hard to figure out is what's happening with Miles Straw. Is that is this real? Do you think this is legit? Have you talked to him about this? Like what what do you make of Miles Straw 2021 season because it is like his season along with Bradley Zimmer a little bit. And we'll get to Zimmer too, but Straw is seems like someone that he has gone from afterthought and just like someone to just fill the role for a year or two to like, this guy actually might be a, might be a piece to hold on to throughout this reload. Yeah. I think he's, he's very strong defensively. He is one of the best defensive center fielders we've seen in Cleveland, you know, in, in my lifetime, um, Rick Manning, my, uh, my colleague was fantastic defensively back in the eighties. Um, Kenny Lofton was very good in the 90s great Atlanta Braves legend Kenny Lofton yes yeah um so they you know they've had some good defensive center fielders there's been a few other guys that that have been here and done a a very strong job for maybe a shorter time Brad Zimmer's a nice center fielder but Miles Straw just does I mean he's the complete package defensively with the way he you know his reads are so good his jumps on balls are so good he's got a very strong accurate arm uh, he's great at going back on balls. He's good at coming in on balls. There's really nothing he doesn't do well defensively in center field, and that's very comforting to have. And I know as the years have gone on, there's been less emphasis placed on defense in baseball than on offense. But it's still important, and you can see it, because we've seen it this year. Occasionally we've had guys in center field that probably shouldn't be there. Uh, then you put somebody like Miles Straw there, and you're like, wow, what a difference. On top of that, he's got some very, you know, he's got very good speed. He's just overall very athletic. That helps in all facets of the game. So defensively, plus-plus defender, maybe the best defensive center fielder in baseball right now, maybe. Uh, offensively, he makes good contact. He runs hard. Uh, he's great at stealing bases. He's a very good base runner. So, uh, yeah, I think he's definitely a guy that's, that's going to be a part of this thing moving forward. I think the Indians thought he could be when they acquired him. And when you're able to get him for a guy like Phil Maton, who taking nothing away from Maton, but he was a middle reliever. And, you know, could he ever have blossomed into a closer? Unlikely. Maybe a set of man was his ceiling. So still, you're trailing a guy you're trading a guy that's that's got the potential of a good setup man for an everyday major leaguer that has the potential. He's not there yet, but the potential to be an all star. Thing in Houston was they had a lot of outfielders. They've got some other young outfielders coming up and they're all pretty good. So Miles Straw got caught in a numbers game down there. They could afford to trade him. But I think in the long run, they probably made a mistake giving up Miles Straw uh, for Phil Maton. That's just my thought. I think uh, uh, Straw is is a very good acquisition. And for what you were able to get him for, I mean, man, that was a, right now that's looking like an awfully good trade for the Cleveland Indians. Zimmer, I mean, it just 
high upside pick years ago now. It's been injuries that have kind of kept him from being an everyday player for the Indians. Do you think what's happening over the last month or so is is real and that he has real staying power? It's, you know, that's it's a great question. At times, I do. Um, you, we all see the potential. We've all seen his tape measure blast that he's hit. Um, sometimes when he gets on a roll offensively, you see it. You, you see that number one draft pick coming out. He's got exceptional speed. He, too, always plays hard, always hustles. Uh, defensively, very good. Um, you know, he's right there with Miles Straw. I love when he's in center and Bradley Zimmer's in right because defensively, they've got 75% of the outfield covered by two guys that, that are very good uh, at playing the outfield and getting reads, and they both have very good arms. So, you know, defensively, Bradley Zimmer is a plus. Offensively, at times, he's a plus. And other times, he goes into slumps, and, you know, sometimes he still swings at pitches out of the zone that he shouldn't swing at, but he'll take pitches that are strikes. And, you know, granted, it's because he's looking for something else, but he's still a guy that that – you know, pitchers can pitch too. Can he take that next step? Can he be consistent throughout a 162-game season? The jury's still out. I think he can be. He definitely has the tools to be. He's finally healthy. That was the, that was the thing that, you know, made his development tough the last three years or so. He, he just always seemed to be injured. But, you know, he's worked hard coming back, and here he is. You really pull for a guy like that. You hope he can do it. The Indians, because he's been injured so much, and and part of it was when he was on a minor league roster, so his service time didn't accumulate. He won't be a free agent until 2025, so you still control him for a few more years, and he's in his late 20s. That's unusual to have a guy that's a talent like Bradley Zimmer is and to still have control of him into his 30s uh, contractually. So I think he can be, but, yeah, to be fair and, and to be honest, the jury is still out to see if he can reach that. The best player nobody is talking about for Cleveland right now is who? Oh, boy, that's a that's a good question. I think that changes by the week. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you when you take a look at it, um, and sometimes you'll you'll see something there. I think people in Cleveland are are talking about Tristan McKenzie and Cal Quantrill. Okay, um, but I think just now, the people and and still not yet nationally, people realize how well those two have pitched. Um, and it's been against some really good lineups. I mean, Quantrill's faced some tough lineups, and he's gotten through it. Even on days he doesn't have his best stuff, he's still leaving in the fifth or sixth inning, and he's only given up a couple, three runs on his worst days, you know, since July 1st. That tells you how far he has developed, because on his best days he's going seven innings, and he's maybe allowing one run. Um, Tristan McKenzie, his last four starts, he has a whip below 0.5 i believe it's 0.34 think about that over four games at the major league level guys just aren't getting hits off of him they are so people i think look at them and say yeah you know what they're they're really rounding into shape in in the second half of the season but then when you look closer at them and their numbers quantrell and mckenzie and you see it just how dominating they have been in the month of august and now into september i mean these guys are pitching like Cy Young award winners. That being said, they're not going to win the Cy Young. They haven't done it over a whole season. I understand that. But you go from late July until now, you can compare their numbers with any other Cy Young award candidate, and Quantrill and McKenzie's numbers are right there. So I think both of them are two guys that nobody nationally has really understood just how good they've been playing. Interesting. Um when you when you look at the rest, like this was something that I was curious about because they're doing a reload. A lot of the AL Central is just kind of a weird mess at the moment. Like the Royals are in a very long, it, it, they're they're in a very long rebuild. Then you have the Twins. I don't know how their off season's going to go. We were all curious about how they would operate at the trade deadline. The White Sox look like they have real staying power at the top of this division for a little bit, um, with just the amount of young talent they have there. And then you think about where the Indians were, um, they're, they're just awesome run um, with those guys, with Kluber and everybody else, that like they don't really seem like a team that's like going to do a full-on rebuild, that they're doing a retool. Um, were you surprised they weren't even just a little bit more active? And do you think that they are maybe are going to be a little bit more active in the winter to 
catch up to to the White Sox, or do you think they're going to go the other way, where it's like we, we're going to part with Ramirez, we're going to see sell high on Miles Straw? Like, what uh, what direction do you think they're going to go in? No, I think they're going to go in the direction of hey, in twenty twenty two, let's go out and win this division. Yeah, um, that's what's been special about this organization and this front office. You know, with Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff and. You know, Mark Shapiro before him, along with Ross Atkins, who was who was running the farm system. I mean, these guys have all been so good, so astute at recognizing talent, um, developing talent, especially on the pitching side. I don't think there's an organization in baseball that does a better job at developing pitching than the Cleveland Indians. So what they've been able to do, and it's it's not easy, but continue to compete while you are rebuilding. So this year basically is a one-year rebuild, but they did it while they were still able to compete. They were 10 games over 500 in June, and then injuries caught up to them, and, and they are where they are now, which is a 500 team. But when you take a look at the way they were able to infuse young, talented players into the organization over the years at different points and, and trade guys at the right time, the other organization that has done that over the years, the Oakland A's, and and now the Tampa Bay Rays, they're, they're the same way. Their payrolls aren't super huge, but they are playing better than a lot of teams that have higher payrolls. Well, they hold on. The Rays have devil magic. They have, the, it was in the name. They have devil magic. <laughs> the only explanation for Brandon Lau hitting 40 home runs this season is, uh, is devil magic. And I just, I can't, I can't move past it. I can't move past the Brandon Lau home run experience. I, I can't do it. Yeah, he probably will not hit as many home runs. This uh, next year and the year after, as he has this year, C- correct. That's they've had some things go their way. There's no question about that. And you have to, to a degree. You've got to have some luck. You've got to stay healthy. But to to find the young players, you know, and to to have the talent that they do, and to you know, again, to know when to get off of guys. If you look at some of the guys that they have moved on from at the moment it happened, there were. Oh, I can't believe that you're not resigning Cody Allen. I can't believe you're not resigning. Andrew Miller, who were fantastic when they were here. 2016, without those two guys, you don't make it to Game 7 of the World Series. Same thing with Kluber and Clevenger and, and Bauer and Carrasco. And now Francisco Lindor, although if if Francisco would have been open to staying here and taking less money, the Indians would have signed him. There's no question. But you look at the deals that they made with these guys. They've made some fantastic deals. They've gotten guys back that are that are younger and now the cornerstones of this franchise just you know some of the highlights bauer you get Fran Mio reyes and then some other guys mike clevenger cal quantrill was in the mike clevenger deal along with five other players including gabriel arias who's one of the top middle infield prospects i think in all of baseball you might see him on the major league roster next year for lindor they got rosario uh, there's always somebody there that has come in and been very good. So they've been very good at making trades. They've been very good at knowing when it's time to move on and not get emotionally attached to some guys and maybe do something like the Detroit Tigers did and sign Miguel Cabrera to that long-term deal for all that money, which has done nothing but hold them back since they signed him to that, that latest deal. The Tigers are, are in a perpetual rebuild, it seems. Now, this year they, they seem like they've turned the corner a little bit, but they're still not where the Indians are, they still don't have the type of talent the Indians do. So being able to do that and doing it quickly and constantly infusing that. So even when you're competitive, if you've got a guy who is on the downside, if you've got a guy that you know is going to require a lot of money to stay here and they're probably not going to resign, instead of letting happen what happened back in the late 90s and early 2000s where you watched Manny Ramirez walk for nothing and Jim Tomey walk away for nothing and before that – Albert Bell walk away for nothing. They said, these guys have a lot of value. We've got to be able to get something in return for that. And that's why the Indians haven't had to go through their two- or three-year rebuild, which for some organizations turns into a five-year rebuild, like the Tigers, or maybe longer. And you mentioned Kansas City. That That's a great point. They've got some nice young players. They still have Whit Merrifield, who I think is one of the most solid all-around players in the game. It's been on the trade block forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do these guys have enough? Does Kansas City have enough next year to compete in the in the division? I, I don't think so. Do the no. Tigers? I don't think so. The Twins, we know, will not. 
because well, they, see, they're they a wild card. The Twins are a wild card. I don't know. Like, so many people just well, had them still winning the, the division thing. this year. That like a lot of it depends on what they do with Polanco, how they address the starting pitching. I don't know. The Twins, I'm I'm not gonna right. I'm not gonna strike through them. Okay, but here's the thing with them: they still have aging players yeah. and expensive contracts. Now, Josh Donaldson's had a very good year, mm-hmm. but how much longer is he going to produce? And look what you're paying him. I mean, the Indians don't have any contracts like that, so they're going to be able in this offseason yeah. go out and sign a guy or two that are going to be quality free agents that you can insert into this lineup and, and be, maybe be difference makers. Absolutely, I, I agree. I, they're they're just hanging around. They're going to be interesting to monitor this winter um your favorite moment this season has been what oh um you know one uh, just to i'll give you two of them one is more of a general this season you know watching some of these young guys develop especially the pitchers you know quantrill and mckenzie i i love seeing guys develop especially young pitchers really blossom and you're seeing that with quantrill and mckenzie and Emmanuel Classe, watching those guys get to where they are, that has been a lot of fun. As what if I were to so, offer I, you a Sean Newcomb for a Tristan McKenzie? No. No? Okay. Not now. No. no. Now, if, if How about a Bryce Wilson? April or May, <laughs> How about a Kyle Wright? <laughs> How about every brave starting pitcher that has been developed through our pipeline that's not working out as right now? That that. What about any of those? How about that? Yeah, if you, if you gave me like three of them, I, I might think about it mm. because you figure you're going to have one that you can develop. Uh, but you know, I, I do like you know He's a he's a nice looking. It would nice be great if he could stay healthy. Yeah, I, I mean, don't think the Braves would trade him. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess not. He's he was in an insane story at the beginning of the year, but um, Morton's been the huge surprise in Atlanta. Like that dude is just yeah. now he's locked in, got an extension. Like I thought he was going to retire after this year, and now he's going to be around. But he is the the leader. For this staff, and I miss Soroka though. I miss I miss Soroka being in my life. That uh, that's been that's been hard. Mike Soroka just being gone, and now it's like, are we sure that Mike Soroka can finish a full baseball season? That's where we're at at this point. Um, just with the injury right. proneness, it stinks because he is just so supremely talented. It would just be a Cy Young candidate year after year. It's very annoying. I'm not yeah. a fan, Al. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's yeah. It's unfortunate when guys get hurt, especially talented guys, but uh, that's it's a part of sports. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last thing here, and we'll wrap up. Um, minor league. Uh, we have September call-ups. It's September 9th. Is there anyone on the precipice of joining the, the big leagues on Cleveland's roster or has already that you're most excited about watching and fans should be, she attuned, should be attuned to? I don't think anybody anymore this year that you haven't already seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, for next year, I mentioned, you know, Arias. He is a, an exciting young player. Oscar Gonzalez has had a fantastic minor league campaign. He had 13 home runs at Akron, got promoted to AAA Columbus, at 13 home runs there, all while hitting well above 300 combined. Uh, so you've got a couple of, of very exciting young players. And uh, Brian Rocio, that's in AA Akron, he's 20 years old. And he's got power, and he's a, a, a good-looking shortstop. He's going to play AAA next year at 21. Um, he's a guy that, that probably has the ability as soon as next year to play at the major league level. Um, so I don't think any more this year, Chase, but I, I think there's you know there's definitely young guys that are very exciting that you're going to see as, as early as next year, some guys that put their the, themselves on the radio or on the radar. Two other guys too that they uh, that picked up the two left or the two pitchers, double A pitchers, Pilkington a left-hander they picked up at the trade deadline for Cesar Hernandez and Battenfield the guy they picked up from Tampa Bay uh, from Jor- for the Jordan Luplo deal. Those guys have just dominated in double A. Next year they're most likely going to be in big league camp. Um, I don't think they're going to make the big league team. The Indians have a lot of pitchers in front of them, but there's there are a couple other guys that are probably going to going to start the year in the triple A rotation. And they are exceptional uh, talents. You know, very similarly, some of these guys you mentioned for the Braves, some of these young pitchers coming up, and all those guys you mentioned, talented. You know, there's injuries here. There, you know, some guys don't develop at the same level once you hit the majors. It's it's a hard place to develop because the hitters are so good. But those pitchers that I just mentioned, those young kids, they're just like what Atlanta has because Atlanta has a history of always developing great pitching too. I would say, you know, what the Indians are doing now with their young pitchers, very similar. Uh, to what the Braves 
pad and have coming up. Okay, okay. But who can forget 1995? Who can forget? What a what a run that was. Ah, uh, that yeah. Was... Well, the strike zone was a lot bigger for uh, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox than it was for the Indians guys, though. Ah, uh, that's that's enough. That's enough. I, I won't <laughs> hear to it. I won't accept it. I was four years old. I couldn't. I couldn't make it out. I can't confirm or deny what the strike zone was like. I just can tell you that my parents' basement. The Man Cave has all kinds of great 1995 Atlanta Braves. Victory, sports memorabilia. Leave the memories alone. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great series. It really was. Even though it only went six games, it, it should have gone seven. Here's the problem. Mm. You know, back then, the team with the not the team with the best record had home field advantage. They'd switch it between American League and National League every year. So even though the Indians had won 100 games in a 144-game season and had won more games than the Braves, the Braves still got home field. Advantage. Are we making excuses 26 years later, Al? Is that what's happening here? Can, the best teams can, make yeah, do. I, I the can, best can. teams make do. The Braves would have won it, it without home field advantage. People know. Everyone knows. <laughs> it was too closely matched, and something mm-hmm. like home field advantage can make the difference. If the Indians had home field advantage, if they had games six and seven in Cleveland, I think that the Indians would have won that series. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we got one World Series after 14 straight division titles. So I think give us one during that uh, insane run. You know what? Now, see, that's like the Cubs argument, Chase. It's like, oh, you know, we've been, we haven't won in so many years. Well, we haven't either. It's been since 1948. Doggone it. We've won. <laughs> <laughs> you have a fair point. But you do, you have the Cavs. Cavs. Want to tie? You got LeBron back for a little bit. Cavs in twenty sixteen. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and the way things are looking with the Cavaliers, that might be the only title they ever win. But yes, they got one in twenty sixteen. So hey, I don't know. The Browns was... look really good this year. Browns are Browns an appetizing good. AFC bet. If uh, if the Chiefs stumble a, lot of a little bit, on offense. the Browns are right there, man. I don't know. Things are looking yeah. up. Things are looking up. Not the Blue Jackets, oh, yeah. really. No, that, well, that's that's been the heartbreak. The, the yeah. Indians have always been right on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. The Browns. They were on the doorstep back in the 80s, and, and John Elway stopped them every single time. But, you know, they've been there. They, they've had chances. The Cavaliers, you know, they only won one finals, and they were there multiple times uh, with, when LeBron James was here and Kyrie Irving, and, you know, it was him and those two and Kevin Love, and the, they were the big three, and then he had some good guys around them too. But they only, just like the Braves, even though that was, you know, a very – strong team with you know the years lebron was here they were along with gold state those two were the best teams in basketball the problem was golden state if golden state hadn't existed cavaliers might have three or four titles instead of just one same thing with the browns back in the 80s if the broncos hadn't if john elway wasn't if he'd have stayed with the colts or maybe maybe the browns would have a couple of super bowls so it's that's what's been hard and then you look at the indians and you think man 95 they had the best team in baseball, and they just didn't win it. 97, they had they were the team of destiny, and the destiny was stolen from them in Game 7 against the Marlins. Against the, and think about that, too. The Marlins, I mean, that's that's a, that's an organization in a city that they, they don't even really care about baseball. I mean, we care about baseball in Cleveland a whole lot. They get a world championship, and then they get another one in 03, and we don't. Also, can and we mention that I'm annoyed that they – we were counting last year as a playoff loss for them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the streak's yeah. over because that was like my favorite dumb sports thing of like, like you said, no one cares in Miami, and they're out here winning World Series whenever they make the playoffs. Like that is that it is that's just an insane run, and I just very much enjoyed that. That I'm not gonna lie, I'm okay with yeah. that. Yeah, no kidding, no. And I mean, oh seven. I mean, I don't know if you remember that, but the Indians made it to Game Seven of the ALCS with the Boston Red Sox, and they were up three to one in that series, and they should have won that series. That would have put them in the World Series against the Colorado Rockies, who had that had that long winning streak in September to get to the postseason. They had to rest for so long and wait to play. It was almost, I don't know, like 10 or 12 days. The Red Sox just ran right through them in the World Series. The Indians would have won that World Series in 07 easily, but they lost the ALCS. And then, of course, 2016, we all know about the Cubs. But see, the 2016 <laughs> series, you joke about it, but like that's my favorite World Series in my adult life. Like That has been my favorite to this point. Like I remember just being up until one thirty in the morning watching and the Raji Davis home run and just how that series went and how tight it was and how evenly matched it was and just the obviously the impact of the Cubs winning a World Series. Like that was must see television. Y'all were the the huge villains 
that uh, that series because nobody wanted Cleveland to. No one cared about the nineteen forty whatever so stuff. We kept yeah. hearing about how how mm-hmm. the poor how the poor Cubs fans. And I wanted yeah. to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're talking Chicago, mm-hmm. and, and I was on a, a PBS show about five years ago during this time with uh, Rick Tellender from from Chicago, and it's you know it's the same thing. And I, I, I get it. That was the argument. Like, oh, you know, hey, poor Cubs fans. Just hey, Cleveland, just take a knee, give it to us. <laughs> wait a minute, okay. Michael Jordan, all right? The 85 Bears, the Blackhawks, the uh, – who else did you have to? Oh, yeah, the White Sox. They'd want a few t- – don't tell me Chicago doesn't know what it's like. Are we moving past the Bulls, I mean, the best dynasty in have, NBA history? Yeah. The cap. This was supposed to be our year, period. <laughs> oh, man. You're not going to get any sympathy out of me for the factory of sadness. Being from Atlanta, like, you just – you're not going to – you're going to get that. I've seen one in my lifetime, and I was four years old. But you saw one. I did see one. I mean, I guess it, we go back and forth because there are Atlanta fans that count Atlanta United as a as, as a title from a couple of years ago. Okay. And, most, and that's tough because well, Atlanta United is fun to watch. But MLS, soccer games. Say that again? And, and our indoor soccer team won. The Cleveland Crunch won in 1999. Mm. And I count that. So that counts. Do you count that? That's not even MLS. I count. You know what? I really uh, liked uh, indoor. I still like indoor soccer. I think it's a fantastic sport. It's it's a lot more brutal than you would expect. My dad played indoor soccer growing up. He played soccer in college, and he played indoor when he got older. And uh, just seeing my dad just uh, slam dudes into the wall, into the it's not glass. It's like uh, it looks like glass, but I don't know what to describe. What what is the top material? Yeah, the, they, the wall gives a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's just uh, like a it, it's it's bizarre. It's like watching soccer and hockey mixed together, and it's. Uh, I don't know. It's it's it pretty is. intense. It is intense. No question. Al, I did not think we would wrap up today's podcast talking about indoor soccer and the Cleveland Crunch, but that is how the cookie crumbles sometimes. I like it. I like it. How can we check out your work across Valley Sports this week? Uh, well, very good. Yeah, you know, we do a pre- and post-game show on Valley Sports Great Lakes, so if you have the RSN package, you can see it there. Um, and then I'll be doing Cleveland State basketball this winter, and uh, you can catch that. We will be streamed somewhere, um, so you'll be able to hear that anywhere in the world. And um, you kept your coach, Cleveland, right? I also do some sports anchoring too. What's that? You kept your coach, right? The one who was long. Yeah, Dennis Gates. Yeah. Yes, that's his name. Exactly. Yeah, he uh, he was a hot commodity. Yeah, still a hot commodity. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, he is a, a wonderful guy. Fantastic head coach. Um, he has got the program in, in, in a great spot. As the Scott Garrett, the athletic director, he just, you know, they have uh, they have done such a great job with Cleveland State, and they should be the favorites to win the Horizon League again. And they got some tough teams. We're, we're opening at Brigham Young. Mm. We've got to go to. Uh, we've got we've got a game at Oklahoma State. We're going to play at Duke this year, and we've got Ohio University, who also went to the tournament, coming to our building, the Wolstein Center, to open up the season. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting. Uh, basketball season for cleveland state i think it's going to be a lot of fun i don't think it's gonna be as fun as my tennessee volunteers just five star after five star after five star in this starting lineup for rick barnes just putting on a recruiting clinic to to replace yeah. keon johnson and jaden springer i don't know do we play all this year i don't think uh, so I don't no think I... maybe so you know maybe sometime we, we, we were down in tennessee a year or two ago mm-hmm. uh we played um Oh my goodness! I'm back. now it escapes me. This is what happens as you start getting older. You start mm. forgetting things, so they all blend together. But, but yeah. well, I just turned thirty. I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not. Uh, I hope that's not happening right now. Also, just being in grad school, I think I'm required to remember remember stuff and uh, write that's papers true. on them. I think is yeah, part of the process. Yeah, to get that degree. Yeah. <laughs> well, very good. I enjoyed the conversation. Al, thank you so much. Stay safe out there. We'll have to check back in again soon. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.